This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Millat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 3. This season, you will get the privilege of meeting the formerly incarcerated and those who mentor, employ, and restore hope into their lives. I am partnering with Defy Ventures to bring you this dynamic series that will teach us what the journey looks like for life after prison. Today you will meet Newt Tan Vo from Westminster, California. He is a dog trainer, a mural and portrait painter, a tattoo artist, and a devout Buddhist. After meeting him, it is unfathomable to visualize this gentle, considerate man as a former gang member charged with murder and given a life without parole sentence. Newt speaks thoughtfully with raw honesty about his past intentions, mindset, and assumptions. His awareness of his past weaknesses actually help him relate to others experiencing the same sense of isolation, prejudice, and self-doubt that he was mired in as an immigrant youth. Becoming aware of his self-limiting beliefs through the teachings of Buddhism is what eventually turned his mindset and life around. That, and finding something he was really good at, dog training, began to breathe hope and life back into him again. Nyut, I am so honored that you would be with me today on Gramercy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I like to start off easy and very unintimidating. So I'm going to ask you a very simple question. If you could time travel and live anywhere in the world at any time in history, where would you choose and why? Oh, that's an interesting question. Oh, no, I enjoy my time in Vietnam when I was a child. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up there in Vietnam. So there was a lot of childhood memory that I have in Vietnam that I think was precious in that. Um, you know, you have this carefree that doesn't have that um, the pressure of materialism, you mm. know, the need to be competitive. Uh, it's very simple living, you know. Uh, people make their own food. Mm. It, it seemed to me, maybe it's an age thing too, but it seemed like there's a lot more concern now. So, yeah, I would like to go back to Vietnam when I was really young, where my mind is still pure and not really tainted with so much worry and uh, you know, expectation of myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's a beautiful answer. I love that you want to go back to a time of innocence and then you already know what it feels like. So that's why it is so enchanting to you. huh? Well, that leads in beautifully to my next question of, I'd love to know what your childhood was like. What was it like growing up in Vietnam? It already sounds very idyllic that you had just such you have beautiful memories. And I love also how you phrased no competition, no chasing after material things that wouldn't we all be better off without that? (laughs) Yeah. I grew up in a rural area in Vietnam, in Southern Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Uh, It had like a riverfront uh, and just rye field everywhere. Uh, That's where I grew up. And then shortly after, we moved into a more populated area uh, near the city. I I think for me, that's where I noted the disparity between, you know, uh, people that have and people don't have. You know, in the countryside, basically everybody has the same essential, right? Mm -hmm. You know, roof over your head, they grow their own food. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, everybody, I think there's equality. to some extent, when I moved to the, uh, the the inner city, I lived with my uncle at that time. And how old were you when you moved? Uh, I think we moved around six. Okay. Was, yeah. Because when uh, I lived, and I initially lived with my grandparent, 
um, my father, uh, uh, he uh, immigrated to the America to America when when my mom was pregnant. I didn't know who my father was, and I think afterward, my mom struggled with you know he tried to follow his footstep. Mm-hmm. And at that time in the country, a lot of people were trying to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like I think four or five years after the, um, the communists took over. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was a lot of hardship, but being that I was young, I didn't really experience those hardship. Mm-hmm. I just about it later. So yeah, I, I lived with my grandparent uh, until I was five or six, and I moved with my maternal uh, family, my mother's side of the family, mm-hmm. uh, my uh, my maternal uh, grandmother. Mm-hmm. In the inner city. Yeah, that's where I kind of start to get exposed to, you know, more, more things, more people. Uh, mm-hmm. And it like, seems like everybody's really busy. Everybody's trying to do something, you know, in the countryside. <laughs> you can just really hang out on a rice field. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think that was also the time um, we learned that my father had become an American citizen, that we were actually uh, going to, you know, go to America and for for us at that time was a big deal, a real big yeah. deal. It's kind of like, you know, you watch that movie, um, The Chocolate Cake Factory, when you get that going ticket to the Vietnamese people. It's kind of like, you know, we, especially your, stand, your standard living, it's, you know, it's, it's poor there. So I didn't really know what that mean, but mm-hmm. I guess my brother and my mother and a lot of people know what that mean. Yeah, and then we came here when I was nine. My uh, my father sponsored my mother and two of my older brother. So, how many children do your parents have? A uh, total of three. I'm the youngest. I have two older brothers. Okay, you and your two older brothers all came to meet your dad after how many years? So, you said you were nine. He had already been gone nine years, maybe ten years. Yeah, nine years. That's got to be quite an interesting reunion, meeting somebody you don't know who's your father. Yeah. I think for me at that time, you know, I have a lot of idea of who he is. And then I think, I think a lot of it play into my, 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 you know, growing up with my insecurity too. The idea of, you know, uh, uh, you somehow inadequate because you don't have both parents. Mm. So I grew up in, in, in Vietnam, and I kind of had that experience. That, that's what my thinking at that time. Was um, that a societal thing? Do you, did you feel that pressure or that norm societally, or is this just something you internalized and thought you were less than because of that? I, I, think, I think it's 50-50. Okay. I'm not sure, I, I don't have the statistic, but I'm sure in culture, just at Vietnam, they have very low rate of uh, divorce because of social obligation, I think, of social norm. Mm. And, and so there, I imagine there's a lot unhappy marriage, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but to be divorced or uh, to be, uh, you know, a, a child without a father, it, it's... Um, it plays certain stigma on you, I think. Uh, maybe, maybe because other kids would making fun of me, or maybe I somehow internalize that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did felt there was a sense of inadequacy. I think another part for me was I didn't really completely felt like I belong over there either, because of that. Oh wow! Yeah, that's and, uh, telling. Yeah. Uh, because I remember, you know, there is a certain, there's a certain outlook people have toward uh, people that, um, you know, their, their family member went to America shortly after the war. I mean, if you just, to stay behind, then, you know, you kind of get ostracized from that. Even, I, I learned later on that even, you know, public school, you can't even go to public school. You kind of have to pay the teachers to go to public school because of your association with the American, you know. So there's a lot of things, you know, involved. Mm-hmm. I think I'm just trying to find a link here, why I think the way I think. Uh, but I, sure. I, I, remember I don't really feel like I belong there. So I was really happy to learn that I'm not going to be there forever. Maybe it's, you know, my, my socioeconomic. Mm-hmm. And, and just this notion of being this place that, I mean, the way they paint it is like heaven, you know, <laughs> like it's, it, yeah, the way they paint it to um, 
to a person living at that time in Vietnam is like it's really different now. People know so much. But yeah, I we actually I actually felt like I was going to heaven, like I'm 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 leaving. Yeah, so you were thinking your life is suddenly gonna be so much better once you arrived here. Yeah. And is that what happened? Uh, to some part, yeah. I yeah, think. where did you end up when, when you arrived here? Where was your dad settled? We landed in Westminster in Orange County. Okay. And it's like the largest dysphoria of Vietnamese population outside Vietnam. I did not know that. Yeah, if you were to look at it from Canada, Australia, there's a lot of countries that took in uh, uh, refugee, uh, mm -hmm. Vietnamese refugee, but the largest uh, centralization of Vietnamese uh, after the war was in this area. Yeah, so it, it wasn't that big of a culture slash for me, you know, because- I imagine. <laughs> yeah, but when we move over here, I meet my father for the first time. We live in uh, an apartment, two-room apartment. And then shortly, I think about two years, a year after, my, my parents got divorced. And so I, I think for me at that time, I was a very, I don't know I, if I'm an introvert kid or not, but like I, I, I keep to myself a lot. I, I'm shy, I don't socialize much, mm. and I don't speak the language, so there's that barrier. And then I had this idea that, you know, uh, I have a lot of self-limiting belief. I just didn't think I was, you know, I would be, I'm able to learn. Uh-huh. That's an interesting way to phrase that, self-limiting beliefs. I've never heard anyone phrase it like that. That's a genius phrase because that's exactly, it says what it does. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure there's some point that you're probably going to talk about later where you came to realize this, yeah. but at the time you didn't. When I was speaking with Quan, he was telling me that a lot of the Vietnamese families who would come over, they would um, have their children have a Vietnamese age and an American age so that they would get into younger classes so they could learn English better. Did that happen with you or how long did it take you to grasp a hold of the new language? No, you know, I actually have a funny story about that. Well, good, share it. And yeah, I have heard of that and that does happen, but I didn't, it, uh, my parents kept, kept my age. Okay. But I, I remember I was in junior high school and I felt very insecure because some of these guys, they have mustache and body, uh, you know, facial hair. And they yeah. don't really have facial hair that soon, I, I mm -hmm. think. But in my mind, I'm like, this must be something wrong with me because, you know, why, why all these guys in the, uh, you know, my classmate have body hair and I don't. But then I learned later, they're really like three, four years older than me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you took ESL in school. That must have been horrible, actually, to... I mean, you're already in such a most vulnerable age, which is middle school, you know, comparing yourself to every other kid out there. Mm -hmm. And they're all way more developed than you are. And it's not because you're lacking. It's because they're older. They're way older than you. That's horrible. I'm so sorry. Well, that only said what you were already thinking, those negative thoughts, right? Yeah. I think what it is, too, with, uh, is, is though... Um, people that came here that are old already, like they're in their, their teen, they're like 17, 18, 19, or they, they're not in the age where they can go to school. So maybe um, uh, they, they report that their age is younger, so they can at least go to school and learn, learn English, because that's mm -hmm. the only mean they have to go to school, public mm -hmm. school. Fortunately for me, I came here when I was young. And that's one thing that I, I, I come to realize that I did not take advantage of that. I, I have a, a good advantage for me to be able to learn and assimilate very well, mm -hmm. uh, but I choose not to. Mm. Uh, I choose not to, and I choose to ethnically isolate myself. I, I held a lot of prejudice in my own mind. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was trapped, you know? I, I don't fit in with uh, the, the newly immigrated uh, Vietnamese, nor do I fit in with the Vietnamese that were born in America. Mm, what a hard place. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I can already tell you've done so much internal work because the verbiage you're using to express where you were and what you were thinking and 
I know none of this was in your brain at the time, but I'm super impressed with how you could look back and say, I didn't take advantage of it when I had the time. Not a lot of us want to admit something like that. That must have been a really, that's a really brave, mature, wise thing to say at this point. And I mean, you have from today forward, the rest of your life, so you still have plenty of time. But man, once you came to that realization, that must have been really hard for you. Yeah, yeah, it was. Mm. It, was it was hard. I think for me, and, and I think there's a lot of value in it, that my experience and my realization because now I can be, uh, I can really empathize with the, the, the use, especially biracial use or use that or uh, immigrant or mm -hmm. just use in general that they don't feel like they belong in their environment. It's not a race thing, it's not an ethnic thing, and just this idea of you do not feel you belong because you said a lot of limiting belief that you have that it, it never verified, you know, we, we live with a lot of assumption. True. Yeah. And, and we're so afraid of actually stepping out of that comfort zone and challenge ourselves. Uh, and to see if that assumption, you know, under the test, if it's true or not. But Yeah. Validate it. Did you ever um, share how you were feeling with either of your parents or your older brothers? No, I, I, I think that that's another part that I think that um, it would have been helpful. It just, I think there's a culture barrier there. Uh, for instance, I remember I used to, I used to go to school. And so I, I'm exposed to this whole new culture of how much independent and freedom children have. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, freedom such as sometimes a parent have to like knock on a child door and can I, can I come in? That don't that don't happen in Asian culture. <laughs> you, don't, you don't expect your parent to ask your permission to come in your room. That mm -hmm. unheard of. Wow. But for me to to be exposed to this culture, and yet uh, when I come home, I know my role. I know my expectation. So there's an inner conflict. There's a, there's an inner rebellion that I, I have. That I go, oh, you know, I want to be like this kid here. But then at the same time, I know I I know. I have to fit this role. I yes. have to fit. And so sometimes the inner conflict come out in behavior that I don't even notice myself. Mm. I, I try to sometimes, I might be disrespectful towards my parent by, you know, uh, uh, by showing sign that I, I'm, I'm displeased with something they want me to do. I still do it, but I still have that look on my face. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and those are just little patterns that, now that I look back at it, I kind of realize where those things come from because I never have an opportunity to sit down with them and say, this is how I feel. This is, this is something that, um, that bothered me because it, it seems like we're living in a big world, but we're in a little bubble. And then every yeah. time I come out of this bubble, I have to be a certain way. And then I have, when I come back in this little bubble, I have to be a certain way. And it, it's conflicting for me. For sure. And you didn't know that all immigrant children go through this. You didn't know this at the time. And nobody talked about this that. This tension yeah. of cultures and, and new, you had no idea. Most kids, uh, well, I speak for me. I don't know about other people. But what that does for me is that I, I find substitution. I find way to substitute that okay. feeling of not belonging or mm -hmm. inadequate uh, or, or just feeling a, a, a loss of control, you know? Um, yes. And so I substitute that by uh, socializing myself with negative peer, peer that also feel the same way. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, that's where the gang ideology kind of instilled in me. Mm -hmm. And that's why I, I think that's what gravitates me towards the idea. Mm -hmm. The other influencers, such like my older brother was a gang member, Mm -hmm. But then that also a role model for me to look at. And I'm pretty sure now I look at it, I empathize with him because he don't even know that he struggling with the same thing. Mm. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. So all the same people struggling with the same issues and not talking about them all come together. And yeah, that way, is what forms that belonging, that yeah. close-knit gang. And then the, the harmful part of that is that while you come together, 
uh, for support, but yet you don't, you not for healing, not to, okay, this is what's going on with me and find solution to heal. But while you come together and you, you stack another layer of what they call fault pride. Yes. So now yes. Insecurity without actually in, investigating, understanding why you're insecure and trying to rebuild your sense of self-worth or self-esteem. Uh, what you do is substitute that with reckless behavior, with instant gratification, with uh, peer affirmation. We basically uh, blind person leading whole group of people. That's the truth. That's a perfect description. <laughs> As you're sitting here describing gang life and the psychology behind it, I would be absolutely shocked and floored if you were not a uh, counselor of some sort and and are somehow guiding these young kids um, who have just come out of gang situations or you are so good at explaining the psychology behind the mindset behind this. Yeah, thank you. Is I, that what you do now? No. No. no I, uh, <laughs> Shocking. Well, you might have another career. You might have dual career. I don't know, but you're excellent at expressing exactly the heart of it and the pain and also just the psychology behind it all. I'm so impressed. And I guess you can, you speak from experience. So that's how you know the core of it, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What led up to the incident that you were eventually incarcerated for? Walk us through that, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, around junior high school, when I think I, around 15, I was uh, fully invested in the gang life. I wanted to, I wanted to uh, build the status I have. I, I had this idea, this image, and I thought that was who I was. And I can cover a lot of this insecurity and fear that I have just by acting out. I find that it's, uh, I actually find it's a lot easier to act out than actually doing the thing that I'm supposed to do. Isn't that the truth? I think all of us can attest to that, whether you're in a gang or not. Yeah. I get gratified from that. I have the attention from the opposite sex uh, of female. I have the attention from my friend. Just by, by being risky, the more risky I am, uh, uh, the more static I do. And, and the more, in my mind, in my crazy mind, the more attractive I become. Yeah, that uh, built your self-esteem too. Yeah. And so, um, so there's this idea of power and, and, and respect that I, I was striving for. But like if deep down, if I had to sit down and, and be honest with myself, uh, I'm not that person. You know, I did not think I was attractive. I did not think that I was this, you know, very tough guy that, you know, uh, you can't just give me a look and expect me to look the other way. I, I will stare you down. Mm -hmm. But I think somehow I have learned that there's a way that I can just switch over. There's a way that I can turn fear into anger. And that helped me not to really deal with myself. I think that's the essence of it. When I was 16, uh, we attended a party, a party uh, that uh, had rival enemy of our gang there. And when we uh, came to the party, me wanted the attention because I'm at the, in my mind, I was at the right of my, my image. Mm -hmm. And I'm only 16. My mind is, in my mind, in the world is just as big at the little city I live in. Mm. Uh, and I got into an argument with another group there that arrival because of an other conflict. Mm -hmm. And at the ar argument escalated, my, my co-defendant, my, my gang friend, uh, shot and killed two young men. At that time, there were 14 and 16. Mm. Um, and one young man was uh, paralyzed mm. uh, in the process, and another young man was shot. And it's just the, the dramatic, the, the trauma and the, the chaos that it creates because all these are young people. After that, uh, charges were not fouled on me. I, um, I was brought down to a police station. I told them what happened. I told my role. Uh, but of course, I deny I was a gang member. I, you know, I, I told them I was just there. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then two years later, they actually filed an indictment on me. Three years later? Yeah. No. Were you when, living in fear about that the whole time? Sort of. But at first, at the beginning, I was. But then I just, I just move on with my life. I, I actually, I, I actually moved out of state. I made some changes in my life. Not. I didn't do any internal work. But I, I, what I did was I removed myself from the environment, mm. and that, and that alleviate some, to some extent. Mm-hmm. So I work. I, I. Uh, I become a welder. I work various jobs. Uh, I actually start doing manicure, all kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's typical, but like I, so I was working, and one day I got pulled over, and they say I have two uh, two uh, murder and uh, uh, warrant, and oh, I was, no. and then I would try about two years later, and I was uh, given three life without the possibility of parole. Oh my goodness. What did that feel like? What was going through your mind when you heard that? You know, it's, it's, I didn't know how to receive that. I, it kind of, it went full circle for me because I remember, I remember vividly that day, that day, they came with a verdict and, and, and uh, I was just numb, you know, it's like you, you in shock. I didn't think that it could have happened. Mm-hmm. But what, like, I think what more poignant for me that day was I actually saw my father cry that day. Like, I, I never, uh, I think I held a lot of, like, like I say, a lot of assumption in my head. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think, you know, that he's capable of mm-hmm. his emotion because I thought that the idea of, what a man should be mm-hmm. and then there's uh but i realized i realized that day how much he, he cared about me how how much how wrong i was uh, the, oh. i think that that stayed with me more than uh that life sentence. I really that touched your heart more than the consequence yeah because i realized stupid i was i realized like it's oh. all whole time i was just running away try, it's almost kind of like you have this kid that that's sick for attention, do all this thing, but the whole time he had that, you know. You, and he didn't know it. He didn't know he had. So, did your family, specifically your 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 father, keep in touch with you while you were in prison? Did they? Did you want them to? Did your relationship get better? Did it get worse? Tell me what that communication was like, and how it either helped you or didn't help you. Yeah, I, 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 like, I have a lot of shame when really? I come to that stage because the love is there. He, you know, they helped me, they helped me throughout my whole court proceeding. Uh, mm-hmm. They expend a lot of money, um, not a lot, but whatever they have. And, um, and uh, I think just the idea of me getting that life sentence. It's like it's a failure on my part as a son. You know, it's like there's this role that you have to, there's a role expectation that you take care of your parent and Asian culture. Mm -hmm. But then when I really look at the cause of it, like what is the work? Like why am I doing all these things? It's not, and and that where that shame came in because Mm -hmm. I was so self-seeking the whole Mm -hmm. time thinking about what I feel what give me instant relief? What, how do I feel important? How do I feel validated? While they, you know, they're working really hard uh, just to sustain a life, you know? Because um, I'm thinking, if he think the way I did, then me and my, my brother, my mother would never come to America. If he, if he just think for himself, why would he, Sponsor. He, he can come here. He can meet a, a woman and have his own life. I mean, that's a possibility. That happened, but he didn't do that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things he didn't do mm-hmm. uh, that I overlooked. That. So that day was the day you realized how much your dad loved you. That's yeah. heavy. Yeah, but he don't say nothing. He Even didn't after, say anything. No. After that, we rarely talk. Even. This day when I come home, yeah, we probably have like a couple 
sentenced at the table, but he's present. He's present in the acknowledgement that that's there, uh, that I'm there, that he's there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's enough. Mm-hmm. I I know that now because I'm a lot older. But I can just imagine a child living in this culture. Yeah. Naturally, that child would think that's not normal because of terror vision, because how it, 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 this idea of, of, of father and son being friend, you know, mm-hmm. they propagate that idea. And then you, in the household, it's, there's this barrier that you, you know, you, I think that's a valuable lesson, uh, especially with ethnic kids. Mm-hmm. If, you know, I think if the parent willing to, to, uh, you know, to, to, to overlook their pride or to let go of some of this traditional belief and actually reach out to the child and, and, and actually, you mm-hmm. know, inquire, like, you mm-hmm. know, what, what is it going on with you or, you know, mm-hmm. not, not through intimidation because the, the more, the less you talk, the more intimidation. <laughs> and Isn't that true? Yeah. you a child. So I hear you saying that it was partly part of the culture that affected you because it's not common in the Vietnamese culture to express feelings of adoration. Is that true? And so maybe if you had known that, maybe your sense of self would have felt better earlier than later. Is, is, am I hearing you correctly? It's probably case by case, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I think generally that's the culture. Generally that is the culture, but yet there are kids that understand the role very clearly that they can stay within that limitation, that boundary, mm-hmm. and yet uh, still um, assimilate to the larger culture. Mm-hmm. And they successful. They did not choose to to, uh, uh, to harm other people or mm-hmm. choose to live a criminal lifestyle. Uh, they are those. I think it boiled down to resiliency, which I did not have. Resiliency, yes, yes. I, to me, whenever I feel pressure, when I when I face with situation, I either deny or find an alternative to instantly resolve it, rather uh-huh. than get it through and really look at it. Like, what is what is it? Why why this is going on? I don't have the the skill or the ability to do that at that time. I didn't. This season is brought to you by Defy Ventures. They are a national nonprofit with a beautiful vision of cutting recidivism in half by leveraging entrepreneurship to increase economic opportunity and to transform lives. Defy's programs are helping currently and formerly incarcerated people across this country defy the odds by providing pathways that lead to employment, entrepreneurship, and a successful re-entry. Please visit Defy's website at defyventures.org and sign up for their mailing list to stay in the loop. Links to Defy's website and social media can be found in the show notes. You are out now, and even though you had life without the possibility of parole, you're out. So there's something that happened while you're in the inside, some aha moment, some people you met, some organization that mentored you. Tell me about this. Where did this change happen? And you came into the fullness of who you are and started doing all this personal work. I have a lot of help. <laughs> I have a lot of help. And I come to realize that, you know, I don't look back at what happened to me with regret. I, you know, I'm very remorseful for those, those young men that passed away in their, their family. And I think that's something I'm going to have to carry with me for the rest of my life. But I realized in life that you would not learn anything. You will not gain any wisdom if you don't suffer. Yes. Things go so smoothly that you will not learn the lesson in it. So uh, true. And I think for me, because I was just so hard-headed, I needed something that strong to wake me up. I needed mm. uh, a life sentence without a possibility of parole. Initially, I, I should have made that decision very early on when that sentence would handle. 
is that I should find some type of meaning in life despite of that sentence, but I didn't. I just resolved back to my old way of thinking. Really? Uh, I did. I, for how I, long? Well, for, I would say the first 10 years of my term, I, oh. I my life just continued to build my stat in prison, getting into more trouble. Um, there were moments that I realized that, okay, uh, you know, this, there's, more to, there's more to it than this. Mm-hmm. But then there's that fear, that fear of being isolated, that fear of being ostracized again. Because mm-hmm. in the prison environment, the culture is just like the gang culture. If you have status, you have respect, then you have friends. You know, you have, you, you have this sense of belonging. But if you don't have that, then you are included. You become victimized. And so, I mean, fear do terrible things to people. people to do terrible things and I think for the most part of my life I was living in fear and a lot of those fears are not justified some Mm -hmm. are the majority of them are not Mm -hmm. so what stopped the fear what changed your mind I actually sit down and discover myself like really sit down really hard and look at myself like why um for me, I think it's it, first, first off, it's Buddhist teaching. I become exposed to the Buddhist teaching in mm-hmm. prison. Uh, it's a tradition I was brought up in. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what it was. I just thought, you know, you go to the temple and pray to the statue and you ask for money or good luck. Uh, I That's what Buddhism meant to you as a kid. <laughs> I didn't know the philosophy behind it. The okay. Pra- that Buddhism come with the practice of mindfulness and, mm-hmm. and beautiful, beautiful philosophy of, um, you know, of transcending uh, the self. All this beautiful idea, I had no idea what it was. Uh, I, I become exposed to it because at one point I was, um, I was serving at the inmate advisory council in prison. So each race, they select a person to represent the whole population. I would represent the Asian population mm-hmm. because, you know, I always want to be the guy that stand out. And then mm-hmm. it's just my pattern of doing things. And uh, being in that position allowed me to uh, make a recommendation to programming. And at that time, I was at, uh, I was in the Kern Valley State Prison, which just recently opened. It's, it's a maximum security prison. Mm-hmm. And I noticed they have no religious service for Buddhists. And then and I, I read I read somewhere that every inmate have a religious right to religious practice, and nobody should be included. So, oh, how come there are no Buddhist services? So, what I did, what I made a proposal, and I I my initial thought was just to rally up all the Asians so we have a space where we can meet and and you know and I can look good in front of the guy that I'm able to do something like that. But then. Uh, in order to do that, I have to sh- prove to the chaplain, the head chaplain, that I know something about Buddhism. So there's like an interview process before you can, uh, at that time, they call it an inmate minister. So you, you mm-hmm. apply for that role. And so I went, I, I went and I read the book, I was studying this stuff, just with that pretense that this is what I'm going to do. Because you so, still want, you were doing it to look good in front of all the other guys, but it was actually teaching you. Yes. That's hilarious. Story. <laughs> and I, I did, the more I learned about it, I go, wow, this, this is very practical teaching. Mm-hmm. It teaches you how, it basically teaches you how to love yourself, essentially love yourself and give you all this tool, all this tool to investigate and love yourself and to transcend the moment. And I go, wow, this is, this, you know, I, it, at that time, and then it's also at that moment in my life where I felt like, okay, I'm, I'm really not that stupid. I can actually learn something if I'm interested in it. Uh, so I started taking courses. I started taking courses, corresponding courses, and I have all this, um, I have all this volunteer that's like, you know, they, they're really happy that somebody's seeking out to them, wanting to learn how to, you know, meditate and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> There's a lady named Julia Grace. She passed away uh, two, three years ago, but she's, she's my, my first, one of my first Buddhist mentors, mm-hmm. and she's not Asian, you know, and, you know, she had so much love and compassion in her. She flew from New York City to come over to visit me and just to, uh, you know, she embodied the teaching. Wow. 
That is so encouraging. Yeah, that when you see somebody living what they believe, that's the best witness for that yeah. belief system, isn't it? And that also come, you know, like I say, I was ethnically isolated my whole life. So I held a lot of limiting belief. I did not think that, I know this is wrong, but I think white people can be Buddhist, you know, in my mind. I was like, yeah. it just really don't match. It, 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 yeah. That's how ignorant I was. <laughs> So I cannot learn anything from a white person. I mean, about my tradition, mm-hmm. but it proven how wrong I was about that. And then various other things that I'm wrong about uh, that, you know, you have this, uh, what they call it, xenophobia, or, or you have this ethnic pride that mm-hmm. you never truly investigate. I have all those things, uh, but gradually little layer, little layer of being peeled for me. And the more uncomfortable uh, it is, the more revealing it is for me when I actually take, you know, the initiative to. Uh, so it started out that way. It started out, I opened a service. I have these guys coming in there with the pretend that they can have a space to, to hang out. And then when I start to get so engaged in the service, I actually try to teach it. And then now I have this conflict with the guy, go, wait a minute here to hang out why are you making us doing all this stuff and then i go oh so it's not gonna work i need to get rid of these guys <laughs> so i it's funny but gradually i weed out some of the guy that's not going in there for that and i i realized that i'm a good teacher i mean i, I enjoy teaching and then, you know i can i think of the same idea that i have other people look up to me admire me yeah that being reckless or, or willing to take risks because I pride myself in doing that. Now uh, they are looking up to me like this guy is kind of breaking the barrier. He, he you know, he, he changing and, and he's not afraid of changing. Uh, because in, in prison, when you, uh, when you take dramatic change like that, it can mm-hmm. be viewed as, you know, as a sign of witness. Uh, mm. You get crowned upon, it's, it, especially a maximum prison. I would still, I still hang on to some of that belief. So I didn't completely relinquish. I didn't, I wasn't a complete Buddhist. It's also during that time that I would reach out by the Human Rights Watch by a lady named Elizabeth Calvin. At that time, she would, she was trying to get life without possibility of parole banned for juvenile. She think that's, unco- you know, unjust. Yes. Uh, Good for her. And she was actually able to get legislation in, in, uh, in Congress to, to uh, try to get that passed. Uh-huh. When she reached out to me, yeah, it's, to me, in, in my mind, I didn't, think, I didn't think that anybody really cared about anybody, mm. you know, uh, 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 me at that time. But she's like, you, you have value. Mm. You, you have a lot to offer and we waiting for you. We want you to come home. And it's like something that you, you want to hear. You know? Yes. Especially from somebody. I, I think at some point I didn't, ex- I didn't expect that I should deserve any kindness because I just carry so much. Oh. But when that is expressed from somebody that I do not expect to show me. And she continued to correspond with me. Uh, they put me in some type of uh, a, a survey, a pamphlet that they made. I did an interview with them. Uh, and then after that, I, I, uh, I lost uh, contact with her. And then another group reached out to me, which is the Innocent, the Innocent Juvenile Fair and Sensing Clinic. They are, they are part of the Loyola Law School and they want to reopen my case because they felt like I should not get that. And it just, a lot of things just starting to happen. Wow. And, did you start feeling hope at this point or were you afraid to hope? You know, I was, I was conflicted at that time because I really want to believe, I really want to believe that, um, that I, there, there's, you know, there's hope. But then, of course, after my trial, I, we went through the appeal process. Uh, you know, I have various uh, attorney, a state appointed and stuff. And it just, it just thing keep, you know, you keep getting disappointed, you get denial after denial. So you kind of brave yourself for disappointment. So you don't mm-hmm. have expectation. I'm gonna try to have very limited expectation. Mm. 
when all these people reach out to me, it, it, yeah, it does rekindle hope. But then when they leave, when 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 I put the letter that they wrote to me down and I sit there, I I just go back to my my present and they're like, okay, I'm in prison. How do how do I live with tomorrow? Like, what should I do tomorrow mm. to make sure that I'm safe in here, that I'm happy in here, and 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 try not to entertain thought that's farther than that. I think that was my safety net, uh, that way of thinking. And then in 2016, yeah, I think it was 2015 or 16, the United States Supreme Court ruled that it's unconstitutional to sentence a child to life without the possibility of parole. Excellent. The transcript, I read over and over again. And I, I, I remember vividly, like, uh, Justice Ginsburg, she, mm -hmm. argued, she argued that you are basically making a throwaway person. Yeah, it's like now more people is affirming that I have worked and value, you know? There's, I think at that point, not only that the news changed the prospect of me being able to go home, it's just the idea of so many people actually care about, you know, me and other men. And yes. Uh, and then you kind of want to, you want to live up to the standard that they, they see in you, you know? Like the yeah. Group. Apparently all these people that don't know you think that you are worthy of a second chance, that you are, you know, you have, you have bigger destiny, destiny than just robbing prison. Yeah, and, and after that, I started taking the Buddhist teaching very seriously. I still conduct services. I, and then I had, you know, I formulate my own module. I, I, would, I know how to do it now. And I, I started practicing. Uh, That's awesome. Um, so you still do the services at the prison for the prisoners or outside of prison now? Both. At that you time, do? Yeah, I, I still conduct services out here on Zoom with, with a, a, uh, the group of volunteers. All those volunteers that I met later on, uh, I'm friends with today. That every Wednesday, I actually uh, facilitate. And that's just one aspect of, you know, the fortune that come my way. I, uh -huh. I went back to court, I got my sentence reduced because there's another law that came out and say, if you wasn't a perpetrator, you was actually not the traitor, man, you should not get life without possibility for, you should not be charged for murder mm -hmm. in the first place. And that law uh, reduces my sentence uh, to a 30 year to life. And because of that, my custody level dropped because the whole time I was on a maximum security prison. So service that or program that available to me, is, a lot of it is religious based. It, they don't have vocation. They don't have educational program. I, I also started, really? I start, uh, I started taking uh, college courses, corresponding college courses. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I, I have this new motivation, you know, and then now I, I think that like possibility is endless. So I, I was starting to do a lot of things. So because other people believed in you, you started to believe in yourself. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And and so another turn for me is like when I transferred to uh, the level three, I, I joined a program called a positive change program. The program is designed to have rescued all and shelter, pair them with prisoners and have them rehabilitate each other. And I thrive in that program within, mm -hmm. within a, uh, I think I was in the program a year. I become one of the mentor in the program. And that's the other part of it. And it's just, I just join every program that is available. <laughs> so I have this idea of, you know, I, you know, I have a mission. <laughs> so, yeah. And, uh, so, so when I, did you hear about Defy Ventures? When did that come into play? Defy Ventures was later on the year, I think a year before I parole. Okay. I, I went to another uh, institution that's a lower level, level two. Right when I went to that prison, I heard the five venture and I joined the five venture. Because you were joining everything you could, right? Yeah, and after I graduated from the five venture, I become a peer mentor. It, it just I have even this, better. I feel like I just have so much to give. You know, in you my do mind, so much to give. So, which component of um, the five ventures that they really? believe in the employment, entrepreneurship, and mentorship. 
which one of those impacted you the most? What do you, which one of those helped your resilience once you got out, do you think? I think it kind of tied in with the entrepreneurship mm -hmm. because it, it helped paint an image of me being a business person that I can fit into that world. Like I, I usually look at, for instance, if I were to meet you a long time ago, mm -hmm. I would be very uncomfortable speaking with you. First is the language barrier. I probably think, you know, I, my accent. And so, and if you dress, if you dress more professionally, then I will feel uh, even more uh, intimidated from you. Uh, and, and that was my only belief. I mean, it had nothing to do with you. <laughs> it really just me. But if I venture through the training that we go to, um, we learn, you know, um, uh, business ideation, we learn through interview, we do a lot of mock hearing, uh, we do a lot of presentation. And I, to be honest with you, I, I, I never thought that I would be able to talk in front of a group of people. Mm -hmm. and, and the idea of me pitching a business and, and hoping that I, you know, and, and, and I aim pretty high. I'm, I'm not thinking, I'm, I'm just going to get through to the process like before. Like, yeah. I want to come out like at least, you know, second or first, something like that. Uh -huh. I think it just, it, it just when, you, when you really get to that point where you learn how to love yourself, when you have this internal peace within you, uh, it's empower you. Uh, it's empower you to do anything. You believe in yourself finally, that you believed you had value because I don't think you can follow this idea of entrepreneurship or pitching anything or, I mean, you have to believe in yourself. Otherwise that's, that's key, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think, yeah. Have you started your own business? Uh, I'm in a process. You're in the process. Uh, right now, I, I have three jobs. Three. I actually have four jobs. <laughs> well, I'm a dog trainer. Uh, by, uh, so I work three days at a shelter as mm -hmm. a dog trainer. Uh, awesome. I, I work for a place called Humble Canine, and mm -hmm. we, we train dogs uh, to hopefully get them adopted. So I just train them, then we post them online, and, and there's a lot of followers that, that look at these dogs. And, That's fantastic. Uh, the other thing that I do is uh, I paint commission portrait. Uh, I'm a really good painter and uh, I paint mural in prison. These are some of my paintings. Oh my, where did you learn? This is just a gift that you have. That you, I did you take classes? Is like, is art in your family? Like, where did this beauty come from? Oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I, I picked it up in there and uh, I, I draw a lot and then I, I took oh and I just picked it up. Well, now I, I, I paint commission for people. I actually have a lot of requests for, uh, when you have time, you can go on the Instagram, you will see a lot of those. Uh, I can't wait. That's one of the first, I am a huge art lover. And especially mm -hmm. if people can paint other human beings. I mean, I'm just incredibly impressed that just, well, that, a lot of the requests I get is pet, like, you know, mainly dog. Some really? Yeah. And then, oh, that's so great. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and you discovered this skill on the inside. Yeah. I find that fascinating. Yeah. So I, I think it seems that you didn't go there to die. It seemed like people thought that they were going to, throw uh, lock you up and throw away the key but it actually seemed in a sense to save your life and transform you and you came out a completely different and better person with skills with a new way of thinking completely enmeshed in your buddhist philosophy like you're a completely different person than when you went in yeah wow yeah, I'm, I'm, you know it's surreal for me sometimes i i I just take a breath and then I'm like, I'm home, I'm here and mm -hmm. I'm doing what I love. Like right now I'm in, I'm, I'm in my, uh, I have a tattoo studio. I'm a tattoo artist. Oh, so you're also a tattoo artist. Okay, fantastic. I've always been curious to know, 
Do tattoo artists have a favorite part of the body to tattoo? Like, are there some places that are easier or harder than others? Yeah, I, I, I think places that generally have more muscle, like your, your, your arm, around your arm, uh, uh, your forearm, places that harder to tattoo is where um, you have more skin. You know, you have more skin and then you have to stretch it. I, I, I don't know. I don't have a particular place that, yeah. To me, it's such a privilege to be able to have somebody entrust you to put your art on them. You know, they will carry that for the rest of their life. Not like you make a painting, they buy it from you, they put it in the house, and maybe one day they move that throw it away. This is like carrying it with yeah. them where they go. Talk um, about believing in you, right? Yeah. yeah. Is your fourth job as a, a Buddhist minister? Well, not they. Or is uh, that volunteer? They actually, the, I work for a nonprofit, and they actually create a position for me because I think it's kind on their part because they want to help uh, people that are returned citizens. They, I think they had the idea that, you know, you would like to do volunteer work, but saying you just recently parole you, um, it would be hard. So they opened a position for me. They call, um, I think it's a, it's a community resource, uh, outside community resource. And what I do is I just help facilitate group every week. Uh, and I attend meeting with them, uh, board meeting to help them to provide insight for a volunteer when they go into prison. Basically just answer and give them, uh, give them um, answers to some of the questions that they may have that would help them, I guess, reach the guy easier or, or just the pitfall that they, they might encounter. Mm -hmm. So I'm like an advisor in a way because of my experience being in there. That's so fantastic. I, you have a lot to advise on as well. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that's my other job. And, and that's like twice a week. Yeah. And I, I just, uh, that's, that's how my day is filled with. I either, I paint, I tattoo, uh, I train dogs. I do private dog training. And I recently with do Defy actually, I started a, uh, a virtual, uh, I had this idea of business, um, uh, virtual painting class, art class. One of the coach, you know how we have a, a coaching night? Mm -hmm. And so they pair EIT, which is, you know, entrepreneur in training with uh, the volunteer people that were interested in the program. And I met this guy, uh, he, he's a CEO of a tech company. And I pitched the idea to him, I go, you know, I can teach people how to paint online. He goes, sure, you can, why don't you uh, teach my employee how to paint? And, and, you know, give me a rate and I'll pay you for it. And I go, okay. <laughs> and it was a real fun experience. And then on Mother Day, he asked me if I were to teach his whole family because they have a family gathering. And he did that. And so there's something there for me. I think maybe there I'll is do that too. But it's... Uh... Can you believe all the connections you're making? And it sounds like you're outside of your bubble now, that you're out, you're, you have a lot more diversity in your life and you see people through a different lens now? Yeah, I, I you know, that, that's one of the things that I'm really grateful that I was able to overcome. And, and that's why I have a lot of empathy for some of the men, especially like Asian men like myself that haven't done that. I know that I have friends that still are very insecure about, they just simply struggle with just job interview. Because this idea of this connection, you know, we, this inferiority conflict, mm -hmm. you know, nobody will admit it. I mean, but I think admitting it is the first step to actually try to change it. Yes. Uh, you have that idea, you know. Uh, you, you look at all these uh, gang members and they act really tough. They act really tough. They look like they, you know, they're not afraid of anything. But yet, if you put them in an official setting, put them in a suit and tell them, well, go in there and pitch a, 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 a business, they, they will sweat because they, they have no idea. It's outside the element. It's easier for them to act out. It's easier for them to Yes. But it's very hard for them to control themselves and find the word, the right word, and, and speak to other people professionally. You know, I think a lot of us can relate to that fear, though. I don't think we have to be in a gang to feel that way. I think a lot of people 
feel that way and how we would all benefit from some type of mentorship like defy offers or some of these other organizations that you that reached out to you and helped you or you volunteer with like we need to take help when offered and give help when given the chance don't we yeah. i'm so inspired by your story i i just love it and when when were you uh, officially paroled uh july of last year july of 2020 yeah so was how was going through a pandemic in prison <laughs> it's yeah it's uh it's pretty bad at that time in, in yeah prison, it was, it was uh we were in lockdown uh and yeah it was uh, i i don't know i i don't know if it's good or not but i actually paroled you know in july i paroled right in the pandemic so the place that i was staying in there they turned that into a quarantine building they have some cases, but they are so concerned that they just lock everything down. Wow. But the bad part about that is like, so you just house a bunch of guys with no incentive and just locking them down. That can't be good. It's <laughs> <laughs> not good. It, uh, and you know, I, I, that's why when I parole, I came out, not only I'm free, but like this idea of, you know, it's not just you, there's just so many people in there that you know, that you, some of them you know very, you know, intimately, because you live with them, you know, they, you know, they hope, dream, you know, they want, it's almost like a survivor guilt type of thing. I was just going to ask that. Yeah. Did you have that sense of survivor's guilt? Like you're leaving all these friends behind and Oh man, yeah. I imagine. I go through that. I, yeah, so you had a lot to process once yeah. you got out. So it sounds like you had plenty of time because you were on lockdown. <laughs> yeah. When I came out, I was in a transitional home for six months. And then I kind of experienced what it's like there too. So it's kind of like you and still in prison, but you in the free world, you know? Uh, what is your one tip to make the world a better place? I think it's important that everyone learn to love themselves because you cannot love other people until you actually learn how to love yourself, be kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can try to be kind to everyone else, everyone else, but if you neglect yourself, eventually that's not going to be the result that you want. I just, I used to think, I used to have this idea, it's selfish to think about yourself. It's selfish to, to, the reality is if you are not well, how are you going to give other people? How are you going to care for other people if you're not well? I mean, you have to acknowledge, you have to get to a place in yourself that you have this peace that you are able to give genuinely or else you are just substituting. You are just finding a way to substitute to, uh, to hide what it is that's going on with you. Mm -hmm. That experiential learning is some of the stuff that gets deep into your heart and can't help but come out, right? It's not something, you might've read it in a book many times, but once you walk through it, then you know. Yeah, yeah that's beautiful advice. What are you the most thankful for right now? I have boundless reason to be thankful. At some point, I don't think I deserve any of this. Mm. I, I think, I don't think I should think that way. But I think somehow thinking that way make me feel safe. Mm. I kind of can relate to that and the fact that sometimes I think that about the people I love and the life I live. I'm like, who am I to have all of this? I never did anything to deserve it. I'm so thankful, but I'm also a little scared that it might disappear at any time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm just thankful to be alive. You know, when I look at... I look at the people I have encountered, uh, you know, the victim in my case. I look at the men that I have met in there. I'm just, I'm just grateful. <laughs> I can tell that gratitude just oozes out of you. I can, I can see it. I can feel it. I can hear it. Do you have a favorite quote? And if you do, could you share it with us? I have a lot, but I have one that, that's, I, I think I use a lot, and then it's from Mother Teresa. 
say that um, the only time you should look down on someone is when you are helping them up. So profound for me. Oh. That is. Well, I'm thankful you are alive too. Your story is an inspiration. You, who you are, is an inspiration. The lives you touch, uh, the gifts you give the world. I am so thankful I've gotten to meet you. Thank you. Newt certainly enlightened me about the reasons why insecure kids are drawn into gang life. The feelings of loss of control, inadequacy, and not belonging to their culture of origin or their new culture. In this light, broken people are taken with the allure of gang life by finding a place to belong and come together, not for healing their brokenness, mind you, rather to encourage the trifecta of false pride, false power, and false respect. He's intimately aware of this mindset and has compassion on those who find this their only way of escape and belonging. Newt told me, you will not gain any wisdom unless you suffer. Only someone who has walked that path can utter those very true words. And he now sees that suffering as a gift. I believe he has internalized the words of the Dalai Lama. A genuine change must first come from within the individual. Only then can he or she attempt to make a significant contribution to humanity. May we all learn to become more aware of our self-limiting mindsets so that we can grow in acceptance, loving-kindness, and character, just as Nyut has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.